Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, still isolating in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, staying home in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, June 11th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, our colleague Kate Sheridan calls in to give us an update on what's been happening at the virtual bio convention. Next, we'll talk about an unusual revolt among scientists funded by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. Finally, Stats' Eric Budman will tell us about his reporting on one Tennessee family's desperate search for the experimental COVID-19 drug remdesivir. But first, a word from our sponsor. Alnylam Pharmaceuticals has led the translation of the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNA interference into an innovative new class of medicines. RNAi therapeutics treat disease differently than other types of medicines by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Our pioneering work has delivered the world's first and only approved RNAi therapeutics, and we're just getting started. Learn more about how our science is changing the way medicine treats disease at alnylam.com stat. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash stat. Every June, Biotech's D.C.-based lobbying group puts on a big show to promote the industry's work. The BioConvention, as it's called, isn't normally a gathering where real news happens. But this year is different, given the confluence of the coronavirus, the economic shutdown, and the recent unrest and protests following the killing of George Floyd. Our stat colleague Kate Sheridan has been virtually attending the BioConvention this week and joins us to discuss it. Kate, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. So before we get to the substantive news from the bio meeting, uh, we need to have a brief discussion about the branding. You know, someone at bio seems to have deep nostalgia for the mid-1980s because this new zigzaggy logo and lavender on purple color scheme, at least to me, looks like kind of a mashup of Prince's Purple Rain and the John Hughes film Weird Science. And I say that realizing I'm probably dating myself here because none of you damn people were even born in 1985. <laughs> Guilty. I like it. I thought that it uh, it warmed things up a little bit from the uh, normal corporate fair of conference going. And then also maybe it's having a moment. There's a Bill and Ted sequel coming out. I think it's shooting right now. Maybe bio is just presaging uh, a return to that color scheme. And I think Bloomberg, the news organization, went through a phase where its website had a lot of weird colors like this. I think a lot of organizations have have a moment like this. And, and this time, it's, it's bios. So back to more serious topics like, obviously, the uh, coronavirus outbreak. Kate, what have we learned this week uh, at bio about the industry's efforts to develop new medicines and, and particularly vaccines? I don't know if we learned a lot necessarily, but we did hear a lot about it. There was a, a very, very lengthy plenary session, one day about treatments and then another day about vaccines. One thing that did seem to get a lot of play, actually, from those panels was the fact that coronavirus is uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci's, quote, worst nightmare. A lot of people seem to run with that. And I, I can see why it's certainly a very provocative thing to say. We also... Um, heard something that I thought was kind of surprising in terms of the way that vaccines will eventually be distributed. It was interesting for me to hear both officials from the FDA as well as um, Stefan Bensel, who is, of course, Moderna's CEO, 
see that they're not concerned about the possibility of um, a nationalized, I suppose, coronavirus vaccine. That was surprising to me. I feel like I expected more more concern or more hand-wringing about, I suppose. So last month, uh, Bio appointed a new president and CEO, and that's Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath. She is the first Black woman to lead Bio, which seems all the more relevant today. Kate, what did McMurray-Heath say in her opening remarks, particularly about racial and gender diversity across the biotech industry? Well, I want to actually pick up on something that she said, not necessarily during her opening remarks, but something that she said to me on a a video recorded for Twitter announcing that there would be a new panel added to the schedule on racism and inequality in medicine. And it's the phrase frank conversations. She said that she wanted to have frank conversations about the role that race has played basically in biotech and in the industry and in medicine. Frank conversations is a really interesting phrase to use because I feel like that signals a certain shift or certainly an acknowledgement that perhaps we haven't really been engaging with this topic as an industry and as people covering this industry in that way up until now. And I'm not sure if I disagree with her on that, you know? We're seeing more of that um, later today. We're recording this uh, in the morning on Thursday, and there's another panel coming up later today that she's speaking on uh, about this topic. So I'll be listening to that very closely. So Kate, you wrote about a new report from Bio that described the last few years of biotech finance as, quote, extreme volatile time. What did that report actually say? The report basically said, well, stocks, the biotech stocks specifically, have been rising really um, aggressively since 2009. They haven't really gone much of anywhere since 2015. That was, I think, the most interesting thing for me to see and for me to hear. You know, we've seen ups and downs and huge crashes in 20, I believe it was 2016 or 2018. But we're right back where we started in 2015. That, to me, really illustrated what kind of volatility we've been seeing here. It's been so volatile that you can have some really major crashes and still be exactly where you were. Even just during the last six months, you know, biotech companies without approved products saw a crash and then a recovery again. And that's within six months. Like, that's wild. So the BioConvention is among many meetings and conferences that have been forced online by the coronavirus outbreak. What was your virtual experience like as a conference goer? So there were certainly advantages and disadvantages to this format. I actually really appreciated being able to go back and listen to some of the panels that I had wanted to, quote, attend but couldn't because I was either on deadline or because there was something else that I felt I had to listen to. So I really do appreciate that I'm able to get more of the conference in, I suppose. But I did notice that the live chat was also a bit of a double-edged sword. This was something that they put in place to try and simulate that bio-networking thing that they that they managed to produce every year. But what I found is that while some panels really did have a really lively discussion about the, the topics at hand, I'm thinking in particular of the patient advocacy panel that I listened to on Wednesday, some of those live chats wound up serving um, mostly as a place for people to drop uh, little oblique self-promotional messages in about their own products. It seemed to annoy some of the attendees one panel on Tuesday when this seemed to be particularly egregious, and I think a bio staff member had to step in um, and and say, you know, your message has been heard. Thank you. Please don't send it again. That was uh, an interesting experience, certainly not one you get during a live panel. You don't really have to worry about someone staying in the back of a room with a, you know, poster board of an ad on it. So bio has made a few unfortunate headlines over the past few years over several extracurricular parties that featured female dancers with corporate logos stamped on their bodies. That obviously didn't happen this year, which is probably good for the industry's reputation. 
But even outside of the more problematic events, BIO is you know an annual conference that people go to in part for the networking and socializing aspects. How much of that was missed this year? Well, I certainly missed a lot of it. I feel like as a reporter, um, I don't get the advantage of setting up formal partnering meetings, which I understand did happen this year and did happen um, in significant numbers. So people were talking to each other outside of outside of the panels. But for me, at least... Part of the fun of going to these conferences is sitting next to people I don't know and striking up conversations with no particular point in mind. And I feel like that's a really, really hard thing to replicate. I think the live chat um, that they added to this conference certainly could have helped, but it's tough to have one-on-one conversations that you need to have in order to meet new people and network. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone. It's missing a certain something, I suppose, um, when you can't just walk up to someone and say hi. Kate, as always, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Next up, we're going to talk about why scientists typically stay silent about a generous benefactor and what it means when they do speak out. The generous benefactor in question this week is Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook founder who funds researchers through the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. That's the philanthropic vehicle he set up with his wife, Priscilla Chan. So Zuckerberg has been on the receiving end of a lot of criticism lately over Facebook's content policies, most recently for the social media giants in action on recent posts from President Trump. The president's posts included lines with a racist history like, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. That language was widely interpreted to be a threat of violence towards the protesters demonstrating against racism following the death of George Floyd. So the letter said that the spread of deliberate misinformation and divisive language on Facebook is, quote, directly antithetical to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative's philanthropic mission. It also called for Facebook to consider stricter content moderation policies. So, Rebecca, I imagine that the Zuckerberg camp had a response to all this. What did they say? Yeah, so I covered this story over the past weekend, and I didn't hear back from Facebook. But the statement that I got from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative was all about distancing its work from Facebook. A spokesperson for the philanthropy emphasized that the organization is separate from Facebook. Uh, It has a separate staff, separate offices, separate mission. The spokesperson also said that the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative respects the rights of its grantees, quote, to voice their opinions, including on Facebook policies. So given the kind of strange relationships they're in, what did you make of this open letter, Rebecca? Yeah, so it's really not something you see very often. Researchers just have very little incentive to publicly criticize their backer. But I think this letter speaks to a few things. One, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has become so widely disliked at this point due to Facebook's many sins that I think it's become palatable and mainstream to criticize him. And second, you know, I think social media, but ironically in this case, has kind of changed the terms of these funder-fundee relationships. You know, researchers just don't face the same risk of retaliation they might have in the past. They now have a platform, thanks to places like Facebook and, and Twitter, where they could speak out and get lots of attention if, say, Mark Zuckerberg decided to revoke their grants for criticizing him. And that risk of extremely bad PR creates disincentive for a funder like Zuckerberg to retaliate in such a way. So is there any precedent for something like this happening? 
You know, I really couldn't think of anything. There's such a culture and philanthropy of, of politeness as long as the money keeps flowing. Uh, you know, someone on Twitter commenting on the open letter said that it reminded them of the break between the cyclist Lance Armstrong and his cancer foundation Livestrong in the wake of his doping scandals. This is not the same situation, to be sure. You know, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative isn't going to distance itself from Zuckerberg anytime soon, and it doesn't even have the independence that would be necessary to do so. But I think it's pretty striking that there's so little precedent uh, for what we're seeing here. So now that we're a few days removed, how impactful do you think this letter is going to be? So Lyar Pachter, that's the computational biologist at Caltech, tweeted sarcastically that it was, quote, exciting to see all the PIs pledging to return the money if the petition is ignored. So the point he was making here was a good one. You know, so far, these scientists haven't really done anything more than frown at Zuckerberg. If Facebook refuses to change its policies, will they keep their grant funding or will they refuse to apply for it again in the future? You know, if they keep taking the money and, and nothing changes, I think this open letter is going to feel kind of like empty words. But if they do back up their words with action, I think it could dictate how much pressure Facebook really feels on something like this. And it could also dictate how toxic Zuckerberg's brand could ultimately become. Yeah, I was thinking that as I read the story as well, you know, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, I think, traces its roots to 2015. And, you know, this feels like ancient history at this point. But 2016 was not a great year for uh, Mark Zuckerberg in PR terms or for Facebook as an entity, if we recall, the Cambridge Analytica scandal and, you know, kind of the tendrils of, of the way we talk about Facebook now, I think, really began back then when it came to disinformation, privacy, all of the things that we're concerned about. So, you know, I respect the opinion that they put forth about the latest things with respect to Donald Trump. But I'm not sure they should have been surprised that things escalated to this point. And when they accepted the checks in the first place, I mean, arguably, that was the original sin. I also think it's pretty striking that uh, what was once, I think, pretty robust debate about whether to moderate the president or censor the president has become sort of an issue of protest. You know, it's one thing for reasonable people to disagree about the proper moderation for a statement uh, made on a social media website um, by the president. But we've reached the point here where it's become sort of consensus opinion among a certain segment that this is something Facebook has a, a duty to do. And it's amazing how much the debate has shifted. So we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about remdesivir, Gilead Science's treatment for COVID-19. That's meant discussing how well it works, how much it should cost, and which patients might actually benefit from it. Stats' Eric Budman has been covering the messy, disorganized system through which patients actually get access to a limited supply of the drug. This week, he published a story about a Tennessee family's arduous quest to get their hands on it. It's a story that illustrates how flawed the system is. And Eric joins us now to talk about it. Eric, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Eric, before we get started with what happened in Tennessee, can you kind of set the scene for us? We know that Gilead donated thousands of remdesivir doses to the federal government and that the government is handling distribution to individual states. But how does that process play out in practice? That is such a great question, and it has changed a number of times in the past few weeks. So at first, what happened was on May 6th, hospitals just sort of got cases of remdesivir out of the blue. And uh, they were pretty surprised 
that these shipments were coming to them, and especially surprised because they couldn't tell why in Boston, say, Mass General was getting shipments, but Boston Medical Center wasn't, even though Boston Medical Center was totally slammed with COVID patients. So there was that initial straight-to-hospitals uh, bungled distribution. And then in Massachusetts, hospitals were like, well, this doesn't seem quite fair. Let's see if we're allowed to pool our stock as a state and uh, redistribute it. And then within a few days, the federal government said, actually, from now on, we're just going to be giving to states and let states do the distribution to hospitals. So let's zoom in on Tennessee. Eric, tell us about Clay Goodpasture and his stepfather. Sure. So Clay Goodpasture uh, grew up in Tennessee, in East Tennessee, but now lives in Chicago. And he had had some experience with Gilead in the past because when he was diagnosed with HIV, he didn't have health insurance and so had to enroll in clinical trials to be able to afford uh, doctor's appointments and Gilead's HIV treatments. And when his stepfather fell ill with COVID-19, he felt like the only thing that he would be able to do was try to get remdesivir for his stepdad. So Eric, Vanderbilt was the only hospital in Tennessee with an allocation of remdesivir. How did the staff there handle that responsibility? So, and I, sh I should clarify that they were the only hospital to get some initially in that first sort of confused, no rhyme or reason distribution straight from the feds to hospitals. And at first they just thought, oh, other hospitals must be getting this too. And they figured out which patients of theirs they thought would benefit most, and they started giving it out. But then this request came in from East Tennessee, which was for Clay Goodpasture's stepfather. And they thought, uh-oh, we're going to have everyone across the state asking us for remdesivir. What do we do? And so how did Goodpasture finally get his father on the drug? So Goodpasture actually felt like he failed because he called a bunch of hospitals to try to figure out where the seven cases of remdesivir that were in the state of Tennessee, where they were. And he really couldn't get an answer. Some hospitals he called uh, had no idea what he was talking about. Others just sort of blew him off. And it was actually the pharmacist in East Tennessee who was making the same sorts of calls because he was just as confused as Clay Goodpaster was. And he managed to get through to the State Department of Public Health and then through them to Vanderbilt. So, Eric, you've been talking to doctors on the front lines of distributing remdesivir in hospitals around the country. Is there any sign that the process is improving? Yes, there definitely is, in that at first, people really had no idea who had the drug or why. And the sort of maps that were emerging were just these crowdsourced maps of, you know, I got some, no, I didn't get some. And now the federal government is actually has published a spreadsheet of how much is going to each state, you know, on which dates. That said, I think some infectious disease physicians really wish that the federal government were requiring states to track data on the demographics of the patients who actually get remdesivir to make sure that within each state it's being distributed equitably. So, Eric, we're going to get to a point where the donated doses of remdesivir, you know, those doses that Gilead initially has given to the government are going to run out. How are hospitals thinking about 
what to do when that happens. That's actually something they've been thinking about right from the beginning because they got these doses and they didn't know when they might next get a shipment if they would be getting any more at all. And so they immediately thought, well, you know, in the case of Vanderbilt, we have enough for between 25 and 50 patients. So this is a, a very scarce resource. We need to ration this. And that's really what states and hospitals around the country are doing, where they're trying to pinpoint which patients they think will benefit most. They've tightened the criteria from the ones that were published by the federal government and are really trying to stick to that and ration this as ethically as possible. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tempanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you think of the revolt by scientists funded by Mark Zuckerberg. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And as always, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 